And so, Father, we, uh, I think we just sang my sermon, your sermon, but you know that we only kind of believe it. So, Lord God, through the power of your word, I pray that you would help us to preach. My words are utterly inadequate this morning, but Jesus, you are the word and you are adequate. So would you impart the truth to our hearts? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter, or that can be translated secret place or hiding place, of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty, we don't know exactly what the psalmist means by that, but I think, and a, and a lot of Bible scholars think, that that's an allusion at least to the inner sanctuary in, in the temple under the wings of, of the cherubim. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. That means like a, a trapper. And from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, his wings, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you, to meet you. No plague or scourge uh, come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion, and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. What's God's name? When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my Yeshua is the word in, in Hebrew. It means, it means salvation. It's kind of interesting because that sounds just like Yeshua, right? Which, you know, in Aramaic is the name Jesus. Verse 16, I will satisfy him and show him my Jesus. It's an amazing, amazing psalm. According to the Babylonian Talmud, it seems that the Jews, the practice of the Jews was to recite this psalm as a means of warding off the devil, the terror of the night. It's an amazing psalm and obviously good. I mean, because who would not want what it describes, right? The good describes the good. You will not fear. No evil will befall you. The angels will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on lions and trample servants. It's obviously good. But is it true? Is it true for you? 
How are you going to get the good? Is it, is, it, is, it, is it true? Most commentators seem to say um, something like this. Well, clearly this was written by a primitive worshiper who wrote with great poetic license and yet hadn't yet come to understand the vagaries of human suffering and our existence in this uh, world of ours. So no, it's not actually true. Christians of a more liberal leaning would say, well, yeah, it's, it's not actually true, but clearly it should be true, so we should make it true. We can build a world without fear, put guardrails around every precipice, carry snake bike pit kits and, and build hospitals. It, it's not true, but we can make it true. Christians of a more conservative leaning would say, well, it, it must be true, and we can prove that it's true if we only believe. That is, it's true if we believe. That's what it means to dwell in the shelter of the, of the Most High and hold fast to, to God in love. You know, in Luke 10, Jesus says this to his disciples. Look, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Well, that is a really interesting promise from Jesus, especially since it's recorded by Luke, who goes on to record the crucifixion of Jesus <laughs> and the scourging of Jesus, the stoning, the martyrdoms of his disciples in the book of Acts. Nothing shall hurt you. Hmm. Now, Luke does record this weird incident in which the Apostle Paul, you may have read this, got bit by a viper collecting wood for a fire. Everybody was sure they was going to die, and he didn't even get sick. And yet Luke goes on to record Paul getting scourged three times, and he gets, you know, you read it. He gets beat to a pulp by almost everyone he meets. Mark 16, Jesus says this, in my name they will cast out demons, they'll speak in new tongues, they'll pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Now liberals say, okay, well that's not literally true, but we should make it true so we carry snake bite kits and build hospitals. Conservatives will sometimes say, sometimes that is literally true and we should prove that it's true, uh, not with snake bite kits, but faith. There were copperheads, rattlers. This was the closest I'd ever been to having a religious experience. But it was crazy they were throwing around these deadly snakes with reckless abandon, something I was increasingly less comfortable with. They had total faith in God's protection. I watched a bunch of these videos this week of uh, snake handler uh, churches 
I especially love this one because the host right there, he's like a snake freak. He loves snakes. You even see he has like a fake fang in, in his lip. And he's totally amazed that these guys in the snake handler church aren't getting bit, and yet he's worried about the snakes because he's, he's a snake lover and he's worried they're abusing the snakes. Well, the idea in, in the snakes handler churches is that if you've got enough faith and no sin in your life, you'll be able to pick up snakes and drink poison and not be burned by fire. You saw the lady spin around with the fire. It's really the same logic that leads folks to say, if you have enough faith and no sin in your life, you'll never get sick. And you'll always be healed. It's really the same logic as, as saying God exists. When we say, you know, God exists, his word is true, and we can prove it. And if you don't believe it, it's because you're a dummy. It's actually the same logic we all employ every day. Something is true if we can test it and prove that it's true. I lost my father when I was 11 from this. He died with a serpent bite. Okay. And, uh, and I guess after that, I just got with the wrong crowd. When I went to that altar and I said, God, the life that I have now is not worth living. And when that instant, that addiction was gone. I never had to go to no rehab. I never went through no withdrawals. It was just gone. Is that when you started handling serpents? It wasn't like I just went to the altar and the next day I was handling serpents, you know. I had to learn God for myself. I had to read the scriptures, pray, get the, and get my own personal relationship with this man. And... I've been bit twice, and it hurts. <laughs> when you've been bitten by a snake, have you ever gone? I went one time. I always said I wouldn't go. <laughs> but my breathing shut down. It was like trying to suck through a coffee straw. Wow. And I guess I just got scared. It wasn't that I was hurt and went to the doctor, and it wasn't that I was sick. It, I could not breathe. Yeah. And we lost my brother, well, I think this may be six years. and. This was about two years ago. Is that Randy? Yes. And uh, the first thing I thought is, Lord, I don't want to put my mom through this again. Would you consider going to the hospital again? Hell, I learned from the first time to say I'd never go. Yeah. But here's my prayer to God, that if it ever happens again, then I'm willing to either suffer it out with the help of God or give my life and go on. Please give me enough faith to be able to let your will be done. Hmm. <laughs> it was interesting to me watching the snake handler videos that all of these guys, and I don't know why, but they were, they were all guys, but all of these guys, they came from families of snake handlers. Uh, and uh, in those families, uh, a whole bunch of the people, like that guy's dad died, his brother died. They come from a long line of people that have... Uh, been bit and and most of them have died and as i learned by watching this video some of the even in the videos would would soon die that says to me that something is not quite right <laughs> and yet they so wanted their faith to be right that they were willing to die maybe that is right that might even be faith but they felt like they needed to prove it well, anyway, is Psalm 91 true? No evil 
will befall you. The angels will bear you up. You will tread on the serpent. I naturally ask, well, who is the you to which the psalm is addressed? You know, the Bible is incredibly, frustratingly vague with its pronouns, what the pronouns modify. Have you ever, have you ever uh, noticed that? So many times I've asked God, God, are you talking about Jesus? Or the church? Or all humanity? See, maybe only super-Christians have made the Lord their dwelling place. Or maybe only Jesus dwells in the inner sanctuary of the temple. Maybe this is only about Jesus. But is Psalm 91 even true for Jesus? Verse 3. He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. They set a trap for Jesus, and he walked right into it, and they led him away to prison. Verse 10, no evil shall befall you. The evil one entered Judas and entered the crowd as they chanted, crucify, crucify, crucify. No scourge allowed to come near your tent. His body is his tent, and yet it was scourged 40 times minus one, the 39, 39 lashes. Verse 12, the angels will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Did the angels come and bear Jesus up? Verse 13, you will trample the serpent underfoot. No evil shall befall you. Now that's strangely familiar, and yet it doesn't really seem to be true, right? Verse 16, with long life I will satisfy him. Jesus died when he was 33. I think I'd write off Psalm 91 as some ridiculous ancient Hebrew poetry, except that it's quoted in two of the Gospels, Mark and Matthew, and, and it's quoted to Jesus. And get this, Jesus doesn't seem to think that it was just some ancient, ridiculous Hebrew poetry written by some ignorant Bronze Age peasant. Jesus seems to think it's, it's the Word of God. It's, it's quoted to Jesus, and check this out, it's quoted by Satan. It's quoted by the serpent to Jesus in the wilderness when none of it seems to be true. And you see, it's really quite bizarre when, when you think about it. Jesus would have had to tell his disciples about the incident, right? Because he was alone in, in the wilderness with the devil. And the disciples would have had to record the incident around 60 to 90 AD while their fellow disciples were being scourged and suffering intense evil, and they would have recorded this as they were trying to show that Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies and laws of the Old Testament, including Psalm 91. So it really is quite, quite bizarre, and yet the disciples thought, and Jesus thought it was incredibly important to record how the Bible was quoted by the devil and by Jesus. And so now I'm going to raise probably more questions <laughs> then we'll be able to answer. So just deal with it. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 4, verse 11. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus is baptized in water, and the Holy Spirit, and then he hears the word of God. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, this is my own image and likeness. See, Jesus is the eschatos Adam, the last man, perfected humanity. Jesus receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Jesus receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit doesn't make him speak in tongues or lead him to a Pentecostal church. The Spirit leads him somewhere else. According to Mark, he drives him somewhere else. Check this out, next verse. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Tempted is the word perazzo, to try, to be tested by the devil. Verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Hmm. Now that's a bit of an understatement, right? He was hungry. You see, I don't think he was fasting as some sort of religious ritual or something at a retreat center somewhere. He was fasting because the Spirit led him into the wilderness and there wasn't anything to eat. He's hungry. He's in an environment which would seem to indicate that God doesn't love him, that God's word is a lie. And the Spirit of God is sadistic. He's been wandering in the wilderness 40 days following the Spirit, just as the Israelites wandered 40 years following the pillar of fire. Jesus is like Moses. And soon he'll give the law on a mountain as Moses received the law on the mountain, and now he's feeding on God's Word like the Israelites fed on manna. Jesus is like Moses, and Jesus is like Adam. And check this out. He's being tempted by a talking snake. Verse 3, and the tempter, that's a participle of parazzo, the tester, the tempter, came and said to him, if, if you are the Son of God, then command these stones to become bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, God's word. Now, this can blow your mind, okay? But the word of God is God. And the word of God became flesh, and his name is Jesus, fully God and fully man. The word of God is Jesus. But Jesus also talks as if the word of God is faithfully recorded in Scripture. He's quoting Deuteronomy when he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the word of God is Jesus, is recorded in Scripture, and Jesus just heard the word of God spoken from an open heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And get this. He heard that before he did anything to deserve that or earn that or merit that or prove that. At least we haven't read anything. Up to this point, Jesus has been a baby. 
a good-for-nothing baby. Good for nothing, just good. The devil says, if you're the son of God, make bread from stones. Bread. Mm. Now, Jesus sees that bread is good for food and a delight to the eyes, right? He's hungry. He knows that bread is good. For, he smells it. He sees it. It's good for food and a delight to the eyes. And Jesus sees that it would be a way to justify himself before the devil. That means to make himself right before the devil, uh, to, to kind of boost his ego. But you see, Jesus doesn't need food. And he certainly doesn't need to justify himself. I mean, it's almost like he has no ego. In other words, there is no if for Jesus. <laughs> no if. If you're the son of God, then. For Jesus, God's word is reality. Anything else is just an, an illusion. So, so Jesus is the beloved son of God, or nothing. There is, no, there is no if. Verse five, then the devil took him up to the holy city, uh, Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. He's quoting Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now check this out. The devil is quoting Psalm 91 which the Jews used to quote to ward off the devil. The psalm says, no evil will befall you or meet you. And now the evil one is quoting Psalm uh, 91 to Jesus as he literally starves to death. Gah, this is tough. The devil says, if you are the son of God, prove it. But for Jesus, there's no if. He just is the beloved Son of God with nothing to prove. <laughs> no if. And it appears that there's not even an if about Psalm 91. Jesus does not say, well, you know, Psalm 91 was written by Bronze Age Hebrews that hadn't encountered the existential, existential crisis of human suffering. He doesn't say that. And he does not say, oh, yeah, devil, I'll prove it. I'll jump from the temple. I'll heal all the sick. In fact, I'll pick up poison snakes and nothing will hurt me. I'll prove it. Hmm. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, again, it is written. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 6. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, the ekparazo, to test out or to tempt out. Now notice that Jesus seems to equate testing God and testing his word, as if the word was with God and the word was God. And you see, there is no if with God. He is, I am that I am. That's his name. There's no if with God. In other words, he is the one thing that must be assumed. He is the one thing that must be assumed to know anything or even say if in the first place. When you say if, you're saying if something is true, then something else is also true. But you can't even ask if anything is true unless you already have faith that there is truth. You can't even ask if anything is true if you don't already have faith in the existence of a thing we call truth or faith in the truth of existence. Listen closely. God is, I am, 
that I am. He is existence. And his word is truth. That means you can't arrive at the knowledge of God through the empirical method. That means you can't arrive at the knowledge of God through human testing. That is through science, for instance. But it's important to understand that the Bible's not opposed to science. I would argue that the Bible gave birth to what we call science. And it's not opposed to the empirical method. In fact, you're commanded by Scripture to employ the empirical method. Deuteronomy says that if a prophet says that something will happen and you observe that it does not happen, then you are to conclude that that's a false prophet and he's going to die. Back in the day, they'd take him out and stone him to death, which drastically reduced the number of end times books. So it's not like a totally bad thing. Paul even says, Paul says this, Paul says test everything. But Paul knows that there's one thing that cannot be tested. There's one thing that we must not put to the test. Even scientists know that there's at least one thing that can't be tested, and that's the thing that tests everything else. Truth. If you don't have faith that truth exists and that existence is true, you can't even say if without saying anything except nothing. It means nothing. You see, if we really put the word of God to the test, we would be putting truth to the test, which means there can be no test. And if we really put God to the test, why, the sky would roll up, the sun would grow black, the earth would begin to shake, and everything would become absolutely absurd, and we would even have no way of knowing that. Inconceivable. I hope you know that there really are no atheists. Did you know that? An atheist claims that it's true that God does not exist. But if God is existence and his word is truth, an atheist has already confessed his faith in God just by saying it's true that he does not exist. Now granted, Psalm 91 is not equivalent to the word of God. It's a record of the Word of God. And so it's important to ask all sorts of questions about the canon of Scripture, interpretations, translations, etc., etc., etc. But the moment you ask, am I hearing the Word of God in Psalm 91, you're asking a question that cannot simply be answered by the empirical method. And the moment you ask, is the Word of God this man named Jesus, you're asking a question that can't simply be answered by putting it to the test. Maybe you could put the man Jesus to a test, but it wouldn't answer the question. It would only show that you couldn't provide the answer. In fact, you just crucified the answer. The Word of God is God, and it's illogical to subject him to any test administered by you. The book of James says God cannot be tempted, parazzo, by evil. God cannot be tested by evil. 
And yet, we did put Jesus to the test, didn't we? We tested, or we tried to test, the way, the truth, and the life in human flesh. We tested love in human flesh by nailing him to a tree in a, in a garden. And do you remember what happened? The sky grew black. The earth shook. Creation failed. And yet love did not fail. There is no if in love. True love is unconditional. Jesus died, and yet he lives forever. The book of Hebrews says that he has the power of an indestructible life. The man, Jesus, died, and he delivered up his spirit, the spirit of life, eternal life. And the man Jesus rose from the dead in a new body, even your body. You are his body, says Scripture. So listen closely. We tested God. But I think actually he was testing us and giving us the answer. Now, I don't know exactly how to describe all of that, but I do know that the question, is the word of God true, cannot simply be answered by a test administered by us. And the question, am I a beloved child of God in whom he is well pleased, is not a question that can simply be answered uh, by any test administered by us. That question must be answered some other way. Well, anyway, the devil says if, and for Jesus there's no if. For Jesus, reality itself is built on a rock that is the word of God. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if, if you will fall down and worship me. Now, I hope you notice that the devil did not tempt Jesus with beer and Playboy magazines and tarot cards. He tempted him with something far more dangerous. In the words of Fyodor Dostoevsky in The Myth of the Grand Inquisitor, he, he tempted Jesus with miracle, mystery, the control of mystery, and authority. In the words of Henry Nouwen, he tempted Jesus with miracle, spectacle, and power. He didn't tempt Jesus with the bad. He tempted Jesus with the good, but taken in the wrong way. He tempted Jesus with religion, with providing miracles and bread for the poor, impressing the crowds at the temple, acquiring a congregation as big as the whole world. I understand that temptation. He tempted Jesus to use the word of God to justify himself. He tempted Jesus to, 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 to use the knowledge of good and evil to make himself the beloved son in whom God is well pleased. That is the image and likeness of God. He tempted Jesus to try and be what God had already told him he was. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's the word of God. So is it true? 
You see, that's a question that can't be answered by any test administered by us. It's a question that must be answered some other way. Is God love and does he love me? Am I a beloved child of God? That's not a question that can be answered by putting God to a test. I think you must be put to a test by God. And the word of God will give you the answer. That will look like revelation and you will experience the answer as worship, the worship of God, which is faith. Verse 9. The devil said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. It's, it's like putting the word of God to a test is worshiping the devil. All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angel, now the angels show up. <laughs> and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. I hope you see what just happened. Where the first Adam failed, the last Adam just conquered. Actually, he, he treads on the ancient serpent and silences the mouth of the lion that prowls the earth seeking someone to devour. And what happens next is truly astounding. Psalm 91 happens. You can read about Matthew 4, 23. We begin, that's where we begin to read about it. Jesus heals every disease and every affliction among the people of Galilee. He treads on snakes. I mean, he casts out demons. Great crowds flock around him. His enemies set traps like in Nazareth. Remember this? and he walks right through. He escapes. No evil is allowed to befall him. I mean, he walks on water. He calms storms. He sleeps on boats in the midst of storm. He multiplies fish and he makes bread. He multiplies fish and loaves. Then in Matthew 5, he walks up a mountain, sits down, and he teaches the law like Moses. But it's not dead law. It's living love. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what we'll be preaching on this new year. But I wanted to transition with Psalm 91, which the devil quotes to Jesus in the wilderness just before he climbs the mountain and begins to preach. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus quotes the word of God given to Moses. But he does not quote it like the disciples of Moses the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes and the priests, the conservatives and the liberals. He said that they, the religious leaders of, of Israel at the time, in fact, the Jews that followed him, he said, he said that they were of their father, the devil, who is not the father of people. He's the father of lies. He's father of false people. This is my point. In the temptation story that we just read, Jesus quotes the Bible and the devil quotes the Bible. Just because someone went to seminary, has a t-shirt, and quotes the Bible doesn't mean you should listen. Doesn't mean that they're good. Could be satanic. Satan quotes scripture to Jesus. Don't you suppose that he's still quoting it to the church? And don't you thinking that, that he's hoping to use the church to quote it to the world? So it seems to me that it would be helpful for us, the church, to ask this question. When Satan quotes the Bible, this is a good 
for the discussion time. When Satan quotes the Bible, how is it different than when Jesus quotes the Bible? And you see, that's like asking, how is the way in which Satan relates to the word of God different than the way in which the man Jesus relates to the word of God? And I think that's like asking this question. How is the way in which the first Adam related to that tree in the middle of the garden different than the way in which the last Adam related to that tree in the middle of the garden? <laughs> I'm almost embarrassed to point this out because I've shown you this picture so many times, but I think if, if we got this, it could lead to something like a reformation. See, I think this is what the tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden looked like. Either two trees that look just the same in one place, or one tree that we perceive as two and that functioned like, like two. I tend to think it was one because God is one, and we are two. And there's some interesting translation issues you can talk about in chapter 3 of Genesis. But you see, what I'm saying is I think this is the judgment of God, one judgment, the judgment of God. And this tree is also this tree. And that tree is this tree that's right here, right here in the middle of our room, the sanctuary. And I think it's also right there in the middle of the sanctuary of your own heart, in the temple that is you, in the inner sanctuary. So this is the question. What is that thing hanging on the tree? That's the Word of God. That's the logic of God. That's the decision of God. That's the reason of God. That's the judgment of God. God speaks this, and everything that's anything is created. And everything that God creates is good, because God is good, and his word is good. This is the good in flesh hanging on a tree in the middle of the garden. And this is life on the tree of life. So how does Satan, the first Adam, and human religion look at this tree? I think they look at it like knowledge of good and evil that must be taken taken from the tree and applied to one's life in order to make oneself in the image and likeness of God. Remember, that was Satan's temptation. Prove it. <laughs> Take the fruit. Make yourself in the image and likeness of God. I think that's the way they look at Psalm 91 as well. It says, you will, you will not fear. The angels will bear you up, and you will tread on serpents. So, so, you see, when I think like them, I think like that, what I do is I take the knowledge of the good and I apply it to my life with Bible studies and mission projects while trying simultaneously to heal the sick and pick up snakes. And I call that 
faith. And then I think if I pass the test, if God passes the test, if my, if, if my faith, my faith passes the test, then, then I'll be a beloved child of God. God will exist and his word will be true and I'll have eternal life. I'll possess eternal life. I took it from that tree. But you see, just by taking the knowledge of the good, as if it were a thing, just by taking that knowledge of the good, I've already crucified the life and discovered that I'm evil. Just by trying to justify myself with works of the law in the power of my own flesh, I've already crucified my Lord and the whole world has gone black. If I see the word of God as a law that I must fulfill, everything dies. That's the way the first Adam and most of all humanity looks at that tree as a means to justify the self. The first Adam. But how does the last Adam, the man Jesus, look at the tree? Wouldn't he look at the tree and say, Hey, <laughs> that man is me. I don't have to take that life. I don't have to become that life. I am that life. That's me. He'd read scripture and say, It's not that I shouldn't fear, I don't fear. He'd look at the tree and say, I can't make myself good because I am good. I can't make myself honest because I am the truth. I can't make myself alive because I am the life. I can't make myself the beloved son of God because I am the beloved son of God in whom he is well pleased. Well, Jesus heard the word of God. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And without a doubt, without proving a thing, he believed. And that's how he tread on the ancient serpent. That's how he tread. You know, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to pick up rattlesnakes in church. But I think it's satanic if by doing so you put the Lord your God to the test. I think it's good to provide bread for the world and to pray for the sick to be healed, but it's evil if by doing so you put the word of God to the test. Satan quoted the Bible to justify himself. He was worshiping himself. Jesus quoted the Bible because he is justified and he's worshiping his Father. Jesus is actually the word. He, become, he is the word. He is the word, and he fulfills the word. He fulfills Psalm 91. It appears that he didn't and, and, and doesn't always heal whenever we ask, whatever we ask at the time that we ask. But you know what? For three years, it really was amazing how Jesus lived. But even more amazing was how he died. He walked into the fowler's trap. He seemed to deliver himself up to the evil one. They scourged his tent, his body of flesh, and nailed it to a tree. We all nailed it to a tree in a garden. We took his life on the tree, and yet the night before, he gave his life at dinner. On the tree, we put the word of God to the test, and on the tree, God revealed that he is relentless love. 
You can't earn the love. You cannot destroy the love. You cannot prove the love. But the love will prove you and make you in his own image. On the tree, he gives you his word, the promise. On the tree, Jesus Christ, Father, forgive. That's the good. And on the tree, he delivers up his spirit. That's the life. And when we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, 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 Father, that's the spirit of Christ in us, bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and heirs of God, the beloved children of God. That's faith. Psalm 91, 14, God did satisfy him with long life, eternal life. And God did show you his Yeshua, his Jesus. You are his body. Psalm 91 is about Jesus, his church, and indeed, all of humanity. I think evil, or you think evil has befallen you. I think evil has, but you think evil has befallen you. But you see, I think God is keeping us quite safe. You are already seated in the heavenly places with him, and soon you will awake from this nightmare that you think is you. Understand? The way God looks at Jesus is the way God looks at you. <laughs> the real you. Listen to Jesus in John 17. He prays this that night. Father, you loved them even as you loved me. Remember what he said about him, to him? You loved them even as you loved me. I made known to them your name. Ground of I am that I, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. See, Jesus came to help you believe the word of God. This is my beloved son in whom I am. Not could be, not might be, not will be, but I am well pleased. You will believe it because Jesus believes it within you and you will tread on the ancient serpent. But listen closely. If you take the word of God in the Sermon on the Mount as a law that we must fulfill, if you take the word of God as a threat, it will kill you, and the world will go black. And that's okay for a time, because we all need to die to our ego. But when we receive the word of God as a promise, the promise, it will set us free. In fact, we'll commune with the word in the secret place, the sanctuary, the garden of our own souls, and evil will not be able to touch us. See, the devil can't tempt you to prove you're a child of God if you know that you already are a child of God. Maybe, maybe all lawlessness, maybe all sin is acting out. <laughs> it's little children uh, acting out. It's the work of children who think that they have no daddy or that he does not love them. You know, the law is a description of love. The law is good. It just can't save you. The law is a description of love, but the word of God is the presence of love who is your father. The devil wants you to think that God is like a drill sergeant and his word is a threat. But Jesus came to convince you, God is my daddy and he's your daddy. 
I promise. So this is how we tread on the ancient serpent and fulfill the entire law. You love that woman right there? You love her, right? Yes, sir? Now, you're not an adult till you're 18. Do you want me to be your daddy for the next eight years, son? Huh? Yes, sir. You do? <laughs> Why you want me to be your daddy? I have no daddy. You have no daddy? Well, let me tell you something. Come here, give me a hug. <laughs> and that's how we tread on the ancient serpent. Satan wants to convince you that you have no daddy and God is a drill sergeant. Jesus came to convince you that God is love and his word is endless mercy. That revelation of truth may kill the illusion that you think you are and then it will set you free. You will not fear. You will tread on the serpent and evil will not befall you. You will live forever because God has shown you his Yeshua. Here he is. There's the Word of God on a tree. And the night before this happened, he sat at table with his disciples, twelve of them, including Judas and Peter. He took the bread and he broke it, saying, This is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, This is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. In the morning, humanity would take his life on the tree. And yet he had already given his life at dinner, forgiven his life. It turns out that he's been forgiving it since the foundation of the world. This is the Word of God given to you before your ego could even take it in fear and shame and anxiety and sorrow. You see, you need to know this. God is good and he gives you his life. These thousand hills roll so Moses climbed a mountain and gave us the law. And Jesus climbed a mountain and gave us the meaning of the law, the Sermon on the Mount. And then Jesus climbed a mountain and fulfilled the entire law. Mount Calvary, that becomes Mount Zion, which is your home. So if you would, sit down. I just want to try something, all right? Um, I want you to look at the Word of God 
hanging on the tree. Now, you just came to the table and took a piece of that word and it's in you. <laughs> okay? So now close your eyes, if you would, just close your eyes. And now I, I want you to look at Jesus on the tree, the cross. And I want you to remember Jim's sermon last week. When you look at the cross, don't do it for him, do it with him. He's in you. So, so look at the cross and what do you see now? Well, my guess is that you see a lot of, a lot of pain. I mean, it's like your anger and your frustration and your resentment and your fear and your shame. It's like, it's like you've acted out and you've taken it all out on him. And he's absorbed it into his flesh. We nailed him to that tree. We took his life on that tree. See, your sin is hanging on that tree. He took it. Now watch it die. The second thing Jim said last week, actually the third thing, then the second thing, he said, the old man is dead. Do you see that? It's dead. He took it and it's dead. And it is finished. Now remember, you're looking with the eyes of Jesus, and, and so this is what I think you can say. That's not me. It died. But now there's something else on the tree. It was like, or it is like, a spirit that was in that flesh. It cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, it was absolutely honest with God. It said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. It's like endless, unquenchable mercy. It's grace. It looked down while suffering all that pain and said, John, this is your mom. I want you to take care of her. And mom, this is your son, John. It's love that won't stop. And then he lifted his voice one last time as he surrendered his spirit, saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's the spirit of a life that's been given to you, that now looks at that tree. So I want you to look at Jesus, the living Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and say, this is me. This is the real me. And now listen to the word of God. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. 
in whom I am well pleased. Don't try to prove it. Believe it. And it will prove you. Now this isn't something you just do once at camp. This is something that hopefully you can do every minute, every moment. Because <laughs> you see, you did it in the sanctuary of your own heart. Amen. Next week, we'll be in Matthew 5. In the temptation, the devil quotes the Bible and it becomes a law that you must fulfill. In the Sermon on the Mount, the Word of God quotes the Bible and it becomes a living presence that fully fills you. You see, the first is eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> We've already done that. The second is eating from the tree of life. It's faith. And God is doing that. So everything, I know that I said a lot of crazy stuff this morning, but basically all I'm saying is believe the gospel. Amen. All right.